Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Anger of Beaumont podcast, where we love God and we love people. I'm so excited to bring this message to you today, but before we get started, I want to say two things. First, I hope you all are doing well during this difficult time. And second, please rate this podcast and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening from. It really means a lot for us. The reason why we ask is because it lets the podcast become ranked and exposes more people to it so we can bring the message to them. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's get into it. Enjoy the message. Good evening, everyone. We're going to get started here tonight. So good to see everyone here in the building. So whether you're here joining us live or whether you're watching us online, thank you so much for joining in and being a part of this Midpoint service. we got a lot going on here tonight. This is our first Tuesday night that we're having Torrent Student Ministries going on. We're also having... Anchor Kids is going on tonight. First time since uh, since COVID-19 that we're able to finally get back to a, some similitude of normalcy. So awesome things going on here tonight. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I heard a story of a kindergarten teacher. And this kindergarten teacher was walking around observing her classroom of children while they were drawing pictures. And as she got to one girl who was working diligently, she asked what the drawing was. The girl replied, I'm drawing God. The teacher paused and said, but no one knows what God looks like. And without ever looking up from her drawing, the girl replied, they will in a minute. At Sunday school, they were learning how God created everything, including human beings. Johnny was especially intent when the teacher told him how Eve was created from one of Adam's ribs. Later in the week, his mother noticed him lying down on the floor as though he were ill, and said, Johnny, what's the matter? Johnny responded, I have a pain in my side. I think I'm going to have a wife soon. It was Palm Sunday, but because of a sore throat, five-year-old Johnny stayed home from church with a sitter. And when the family finally returned home, they were carrying several palm leaves. Johnny asked, what are the palm leaves for? They said, people held them over Jesus' head as he walked by. Well, wouldn't you know it, Johnny said, the one Sunday I don't go, Jesus shows up. There was a a story I heard when I was younger of two women that were driving down the road. While they were driving down the road, actually a bunny rabbit ran in front of the car. And so they, they tried to swerve, tried to miss the bunny rabbit, but unfortunately they just struck and made impact and hit the bunny rabbit. So they both got out of the car and saw the the rabbit there in the road, and they were just both devastated, weeping and crying. The one lady, just so happened to be blonde, all of a sudden said, you know what, I have an idea. I have something I can try. And she went in the car, and she pulled out a can, and she took that can and began to spray it onto the dead rabbit. And she waited a little while longer, and she sprayed the rabbit again, and waited a little while longer and sprayed the rabbit again. And then, lo and behold, after the third spray, the rabbit jumps up looks at him and waves, then runs off about 10 or 15 feet, then stops, turns around, looks at him and waves, and then ran 10 or 15 more feet, stopped, turned around, looked at him and waved, and the rabbit just kept walking further away, stopping, turning around and waving, all the way until the rabbit went into the distance. And the one lady turned to the other lady, who just so happened to be blonde, and said, what in the world was in that can that you sprayed that rabbit with? And the lady replied and said, 
Well, it was just a can of hairspray. She said, hairspray? How did that happen? She said, turn the can over and said, it says right here, revives dead hairs and gives continuous waves. So with that said, thank you so much for joining me again tonight. We're going to be continuing our discussion that we had last week about true Christianity. And so some of the things that we discussed talked about bank tellers is that if they're going to train a bank teller in order to recognize a counterfeit bill, they don't give them counterfeit bills. All they do is give them the real thing, and they've learned that if a bank teller can handle the real thing long enough and develop the feeling for the real thing, then as soon as they come across a fake bill, they will immediately notice the difference because it just feels different. And something that Jesus said over and over and over again is he used the word true. He says, I am the true light. He says, I'm going to give you true riches. He says, Father is searching for true worshipers. He says, I'm, I'm going to give you true bread from heaven. He says, my judgment is true. And over and over again throughout the Gospels and even into the epistles, this word used, true, is used over and over again. And what that teaches us, if there is a true and Jesus wanted them to know I'm the true... The things that he's not saying is that if there's a true, then there's also a false. If there's a true, then there must be a counterfeit that Jesus Christ was trying to differentiate himself from the counterfeit. And if there is true Christianity, there must be a counterfeit Christianity. And so the lesson, the series that I'm going to do my absolute best to convey is true Christianity. What is true Christianity and how do we differentiate between true Christianity and a counterfeit? Because believe it or not, there is a counterfeit form of Christianity. And so last week we were just kind of getting our toes wet. We talked about one of the most destructive things in the kingdom of God is a Christian without character. Because as Christians, it's more than just We're not called to be just dispensers of truth, but we're called to be stewards of truth. We're called to be carriers of truth. We talked about it's one thing to bear the image of God, but it's another thing to reflect the image of Christ. I want to start again from the same passage that we read last week, and it's going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. And I'm just going to pray real quick that God will help me tonight. I ask that you pray for me and pray for yourself that God will help me to speak and articulate what I feel like I want to talk about, but also that our minds and our hearts will be open to hear and receive it. So as you're turning, and it's going to be on the screens, if you could just help me pray. God, we come before you right now. Thank you for each person that's here tonight. Thank you for each person that's going to be watching this online, either right now or in the future. God, we praise you, we worship you, and we love you tonight, God. We pray, God, that your blessing be upon this Bible study, that you lead and that you guide this topic, this point of discussion, Lord, that you will be right here in the middle of it. God, help me to speak and articulate it in a way that that brings life and illumination and clarity to your people and let every heart be open to hear and receive it. God, in Jesus' name, I ask you to help me, God, and help us, God, Lord, to grow and to learn and let the body of Christ be edified In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone say, in Jesus' name. You know what? I want you to read it with me. You ready? Three, two, one. Therefore, stop. Something that they taught me in Bible school that I've learned was actually really good advice. That if you ever come across somewhere in the Bible where it says, therefore, then you need to stop and realize 
what is therefore, therefore? Because if he's saying therefore, it's as if someone's saying, I said all of that now to say this. And sometimes if you just read the saying of this, you'll miss all of the whole point of it by saying that to say this. Is that clear as mud? So to understand why it's therefore, you have to back up and read, okay, what is it therefore? So we're going to back up before we get to chapter 4. And I asked you this week, if you were here last week, to read the first few chapters in 2 Corinthians and kind of begin to deep dive into the book of Corinthians. So if you did that, you're already one step ahead. But if you want to back up and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul begins to teach about this new covenant, okay? That we are ministers, every single one of us are ministers of a new covenant. And he begins to compare this new covenant with the old covenant. He says that the old covenant was the covenant of the letter of the law. But the new covenant is the covenant of the Spirit. He says the old covenant kills, but the new covenant gives life. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone, but the new covenant is written on our hearts. The old covenant is the ministry, and he uses the word here in the King James, of condemnation. If you're a Christian, you should know that condemnation is not a good word. That's a bad thing. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But he literally says the ministry that the Old Covenant or the Old Testament gave to us was the ministry of condemnation. What is he talking about? If you think back, I taught some lessons about some different things in Romans about the righteousness of God. But we talked about what is the purpose of the Old Testament law. How many remember that? What is the purpose of the Old Testament law? The purpose of the Old Testament law is not necessarily for us to measure up to the law and to follow and abide by every single law. But the purpose of the Old Testament law was to reveal the fact that we could never measure up to the Old Testament law. The law, the standard was too high for us to reach up to it and be perfect in the eyes of God under the Old Testament law. So the purpose of the law was to reveal our sin was to give us knowledge of just how sinful we really are. And therefore, under the law, the law gives condemnation because the law reveals to us how sinful we really are, how pure and how righteous God is, and the fact that we'll never, no matter what we do, we'll never be good enough to reach up to God's level of perfection. It'll never happen. So that's what he says. The Old Testament it has the ministry of condemnation. And so he's, he's comparing the old covenant with the new covenant. And he begins to talk about Moses. Moses went up onto the mountain and spoke with God. And God gave him these laws and gave him this covenant. And when Moses came down off the mountain, his face was shining so bright that it says they could hardly even look at him because his face was shining so bright that they had to put a veil over him and cover his face. Now the Apostle Paul says something very interesting about that. He says the the glory that was shining on Moses' face was so bright they had to put a veil. But what is the purpose of glory? Glory reveals or teaches us something about God. 
glory reveals or manifests something about God to us. So the Apostle Paul is actually saying when they covered Moses' face, they were actually not just putting a veil over Moses' face, they were putting a veil over their own face because God's glory was wanting to shine through to teach them something about God, but they covered his face because they didn't want to see the glory. By blinding his eyes, they blinded their own eyes. Okay, There was a covering of God's glory. He's comparing the Old Testament with the, the New Covenant, and he says that the Old Covenant was a temporary covenant, and eventually the glory that was on Moses' face began to wear off. And he says, this New Covenant that we have... Just like Moses went and stood in the face of God. He stood in the face of God and then began to reflect when he came down off the mountain the glory of God. And it was, but it was a temporary reflection and it wore off. But now the glory that we are as Christians are supposed to reflect is not ever going to wear off. It's not supposed to wear off and it's supposed to be a continually showing forth of God's glory through us in our lives to the world. Pull up verse 18 in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. This is where he finishes this this chapter. He says, but we now in this new covenant that we've been given, we've been given this new glory that when you compare the glory that we have now compared to the glory they had in the Old Testament, he says the glory they had back then, when you compare it to what we have now, it's not even glory because what we have now is so incredible and so Amazing. But he says, but we with an open face beholding as in the glass, the glory of God are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And he's using an illustration. He says, just as you stand and look at yourself in the mirror, you're standing and looking in the mirror, you see an image being reflected back to you. And he says, when you stand and behold God's glory, The image that is reflected back to you is the image of God, and it literally begins to change you. You begin to conform into the image. That's why when Moses, the more glory that we behold, the more glory we will reflect. Moses stared face to face with God, and as he beheld God's face, his own face began to reflect God's glory. That's why it's so important for us to have that relationship with God, that daily relationship with God, because we are beholding Jesus face to face. And the more we behold God's glory face to face, the more we will begin to conform into that image and the more we will be able to reflect who Jesus actually is. Slowly, we're conforming to the image of Christ. Anybody can bear the image of God. Your only qualification for bearing the image of God is just the fact that you are alive. That's it. Every single person bears the image of God. But Paul Paul is teaching there is a greater ministry that he has called us to. There is a greater level of glory that we have access to. And the more that we behold the face of Christ in relationship, the more we can begin to reflect who Jesus actually is to the rest of the world. So it's important. The image that we are reflecting is important. Moving on, now we go to chapter 4, verse 1. And he says, therefore, all right, we finally got to our text. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry of this new covenant with this new glory, we have received mercy and faint not. 
We've received this new responsibility to carry this glory, to be stewards of God's glory. That literally God will take his own glory. He'll take his own glory and he puts it on us to carry his glory and to reflect who he is. Now, because of that, it demands certain things from us. And he says, but we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking after craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth. Everyone say truth. Truth. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, I'm going to kind of put a pause. I really want to come back and hit that so hard next week. I'm really excited about next week's lesson. This week is just setting the foundation for next week, okay? This week, unfortunately, is not the meat of really what I really want to talk about. It's just getting our brains ready to be able to absorb the meat from next week. Go back and look at those verses on your own and study those verses out. The first few verses of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. And really kind of look at those and ask God to reveal you what he's actually saying. But whether you realize it or not, I'm sure most of you probably do, unless you've been living in a, in a cave somewhere, there is currently a cultural shift happening right now in America. All right? It's a cultural shift so much to the point where people are beginning to say there is literally a cultural revolution happening right now. Never in our lifetimes, perhaps never since the times of the Civil War, has our nation ever been as divided as it is right now. They're saying the division that exists in the country right now is greater than the division in the 60s during the civil rights movement. What experts are saying right now is because there's so much unrest, there's a good chance it's not going to get better before it gets worse. And there's many things stirring and there's many things moving in our nation. I've really been praying and seeking after God about how to go about addressing some of these issues. There are certain words and certain terms that are becoming more and more used on a regular basis in our culture and our society. And they're words like postmodern and words like secularism. How many ever heard the word postmodern used? How many ever used, heard the word secularism used? Postmodern is basically, without becoming too philosophical, is that America was kind of brought into prosperity through the movement that was called modernism. As in, America was brought into the modern age. Because of the modern age, as a culture, we were kind of unified around certain truths. Certain truths that kind of brought us into civilization that we have here today. And some of those truths are, for example, man is created in the image of God, right? It was kind of a universal truth that we all clung to. That it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to steal because we are created in the image of God. And it brought us, holding on to these truths, brought us into the modern age of prosperity that we, were, that we have been in. But now there is another movement that's anti-modernism and it's what's called post-modernism. Culture is evolving into, past us all sharing common, a common belief system of what truth is. Basically, if I can put it another way, postmodernism or secularism is viewing the world without this. And believe it or not, the way that you view the world, your lens by which you view the world is so important. It's so important. 
and this is kind of the foundation I want to lay here tonight, is uh, we live into a society that is more and more every year is walking away from what we call the Christian world view. The Christian worldview is a worldview is the lens through which you see the rest of the world. It is the lens. That means the way you see the world, your worldview is the lens through which you see the world. America traditionally has, and this is not, I'm not talking about politics here. I'm, I'm making this all to make a point. But America traditionally has viewed the world through the lens of Christianity or through biblical truths that we all hold on to, that we all agree. But the lens that the world is now, that people are interpreting the world, are seeing the world through, is now bypassing this book, bypassing any sort of idea that there is a truth, bypassing that, and now we are seeing the world through a lens that is totally devoid of any absolute truth. Said, uh, statistics say that today less than 40% of Americans are classified as highly religious. This means that there's people who say they're seriously committed to their faith. To their faith. This includes also Christians and non-Christians such as Judaism and Islam. And about a quarter of those 40% of people who say they're high, highly religious are actually what researchers call diversely devout basically means that they mostly believe in the God of the Bible, but they also hold on to views that are inconsistent with the views in this book. For example, you can say, yeah, I believe in the God of the Bible, but I also believe like in reincarnation. You're believing in the God of the Bible, but you're also aligning yourself to things that are opposed to what we view as absolute truth. So optimistically, committed Christians represent some portion of, at the largest in our nation right now, 30% of America. That's the largest. That's an optimistic view. So in other words, people who are committed to Christianity and committed to their faith and are classified as highly religious now make up at the greatest amount, 30% of our nation. So what that means is now we are the minority in our nation. And our nation is moving away from any sort of Christian worldview. And we, they are embracing worldviews that are totally contrary to the truths of the word of God. And I'm not here to talk about how bad the world is. Because we, we can all talk about how bad the world is. And we can all hoop and holler and, and run aisles about how bad the world is. I'm not here to talk about that. But what I want to talk about is... What is the Christian's response to this cultural revolution? In particular, are we as Christians getting swept into some of these revolutions, some of these movements, some of these cultural shifts that are happening, and we're actually aligning ourselves with worldviews that are not even consistent with the world of God, we not, may not even be aware of it, may not even be aware of it. So I want to talk about a few points here tonight. Point number one, as Christians, we need to be cautious when we're jumping on social bandwagons hitched to secularism. We need to be cautious by jumping on social bandwagons hitched to secularism. Research shows that those 
who are committed to a biblical worldview are now in a minority, then if everyone around you is jumping on the same bandwagon of some kind, there's a really good, especially if those people are not even believers, don't even believe in truth, don't even believe in the word of God, or at least are not, li- not consistent living their lives consistently committed to the truths of the word of God, then there's a really good chance then it's not a bandwagon rooted in the values that are consistent with a biblical world view. Lens, the lens which you see the world. What does a lens do? Lens bends light. So the lens through which you are interpreting the way you see the world is very important. We have to be careful. If everyone around us is jumping on the same bandwagon, we have to be very careful and say, is this a bandwagon? Is this something that the values that this is presenting, is it consistent with the biblical worldview? Maybe that's not the case in every given situation, but you won't know unless you take the time to thoughtfully evaluate what is going on to determine if this bandwagon is something that a Christian holding on to true Christianity should be a part of. If you don't, you may unintentionally be linking yourself with values of a worldview that is in significant conflict to your own. We need to do a better job at being mindful of this. What are we supporting? What are we linking ourselves to? You know, it's kind of like a story I heard once of uh, this guy that saw this painting and was in love with this painting. He was like, man, I love this painting. I would love to have this and tried to buy it. And he's like, how can I buy this painting from you? I, I really want it. It's beautiful. I'd love to hang it in my house. And the man said, no, this painting is not for sale. Please let me buy this painting from you. Please, you know, I, I love it. I would love to hang this in my house. And finally the man says, I cannot sell this painting to you because this painting is not for sale. He's like, well, why not? Why not? He says, because this painting was painted by Adolf Hitler. Whoa, okay. Well, now, the beautiful painting that I wanted so much, now when I realize the, the, what was behind it, it changes the way I view it. Because it was beautiful, and it was something I wanted to hang in my house. And on the surface, it looked as something that was very good. But when you kind of get down to the deeper roots of what produced that, then all of a sudden it makes you look at it in a different way. And as Christians, we have to be mindful of not what is just being presented to us on a surface level, but we need to have a spirit of discernment. Somebody say discernment. A spirit of discernment to be able to spiritually discern what is actually, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz, right? They're sitting there talking to this big, incredible, amazing wizard and all of a sudden they see the dog running behind the curtain and they're like what's behind the curtain and the man's like pay no attention to the man behind the curtain it's kind of how we are we're so transfixed on what is being presented on us but as christians sometimes we need to take a step back and realize there are people behind the curtains presenting a certain image to us that may not be consistent with this book so we need to be mindful of that carefully if you want to support a cause which i believe that We should support causes. We should be active in our community. We should use our voices to stand up for truth, and I'm going to talk more about that. But we need to carefully read statements of belief systems on the websites of organizations that we support and that we promote. We need to know, okay, if I'm going to support something. For example, we all have probably different views about birth control, you know. Some people don't believe in it all. Some people believe it's, you know, but I believe the organization Planned Parenthood, you know, it's, it's, great. it's a great name. You should, you know, I think there's a certain level of responsibility as a parent to, to a certain degree, not just have 12 and a half million kids. You can't even afford it, right? So you, at some point, you should 
Take responsibility and plan out your parenthood. You know, we all agree with that, right? But when you look at the organization Planned Parenthood, and it wasn't too long, maybe, maybe a year or two ago, that they came out with some videos which exposed the fact that these people who are in charge of Planned Parenthoods are actually taking these organs of these babies and selling their organs on the black market for a profit. <laughs> what? They're selling baby organs on the black market for a profit and they were exposed for it? Well, that, that kind of changes the way I view something that I probably on surface level would have aligned myself with. But when you get to below the surface of what actually is going on, it's kind of like, anyway, I'll move on from that. You know, if you're going to align yourself to something, follow the money. Before you support something, look at the public financial statements where the funds are being used. Not only where the money is going to, to speaks volumes, but also where the money is coming from speaks volumes. Don't use hashtags until you understand where they originated from and what they represent to the people who created them and what they likely communicate to people around you. So number two, not only should we be cautious on jumping on social bandwagons, but we should know that there is a difference between conflating empathy with agreement on action. Or don't confuse showing empathy with being in agreement on action or a response. And let me explain that. That there is a huge emphasis right now, part of the cultural shift right now is that we need to listen to the experiences of people from marginalized communities. And I think every single one of us will say that is a really good thing. We need to listen to people of marginalized communities. If there was ever anything that our culture is terrible at, it's listening to each other. We are terrible at listening to each other. Empathy is understanding and sharing the feelings of another person. As Christians, it is proper that we have empathy towards people and share with them in the feelings that they are feelings. And don't listen to, make sure we listen to understand and don't listen to respond. As pastor has been saying, we're really good at making points. We're really good at making arguments. But Jesus Christ never said, all right, my people, I send you into the world to make really good points and make really good arguments. No. But we're, we're supposed to mourn with those who mourn. We're supposed to weep with those who weep. Something I learned this past year is that you can never measure someone else's pain. You see, when you go to the doctor, the doctor can tell you just about everything that's wrong with you. They can tell you, you know... Whether you need to take this vitamin, whether you need to lose some weight, whether you need to be in better shape, whether you need to, you know, if they, have a, if they say you need a surgery, they can know exactly what to cut out. You know, there's a lot of things they can tell you. But the one thing that a doctor will never tell you is the level of pain that you are feeling in that moment. And that's why they have the pain threshold. They say on a scale of 1 to 10, how much pain are you in right now? Because everyone's pain thresholds are different. They can go and do one procedure on one person and not hurt them at all because they have a higher uh, tolerance for pain. And they can do that same procedure on someone else, but yet it be, they'd be on a number 10 on the pain scale. Because pain, you cannot tell somebody how much pain they're in, and you can never measure somebody else's pain. I, oh, man, I don't know if I should share this story. What time is it? That's a good story, though. There's a, there, there's a man that I really respect and I really admire, and a man that I kind of developed a relationship with. Everyone in this church loves this man. In this entire family, there's a, definitely they're connected in an integral part in, of relationship-wise with this church. I absolutely love the Roundtree family. 
You know the round, Landry Roundtree? Absolutely love that family. I think God used that man to teach me one of the most valuable lessons I've ever learned in my life. How do I say this without sounding like a terrible person? They lost a daughter when they were in their 20s, and uh, she was only four years old, and they lost her to cancer. Can I say something, and y'all not totally hate me, but can I just be like really super transparent? Because whatever. I'm sorry, Landry, if you're watching this, I'm so sorry. Sharon, I apologize. I am a terrible person. Terrible. God, help me, Jesus. I'm a human being, and sometimes thoughts come into my mind that are not godly, okay? So are not something I would actually utter out loud. I've heard that their daughter passed away, and, and obviously they have a large amount of children in that family, correct? My God, Jesus. He invited me to her birthday party where they do every year on her birthday, even though she passed away when she was four years old. And it's something that they do. They cook gumbo because it was her favorite meal, and they, they bring up this VCR tape they, that they filmed of her last birthday. And I'm sitting there watching this videotape. It really just got to me because I realized that when they lost this daughter, she was 29 years old, if memory serves. And I realized, wow, I'm 29 years old. I'm the same age that they were when they lost this daughter to cancer. And I was trying to imagine me being 29 years old and having a four-year-old daughter and her dying to cancer. And it just, it really resonated with me. And I really, wow, this really brings it to home. Because my first thought was, oh my God, that if you got 13 kids, you know, you lose one, you still got 12. Right? It, and that was my thought. And I'm at, this, I'm at this birthday celebration watching this VCR tape of this girl where her, she has no hair. She's been doing chemotherapy. And they says, like two or three months after we shot that video, she was dead. And I'm saying, my God, just because you can never measure somebody else's pain. That's the point. God showed me, never ever be critical of a pain that somebody, or skeptical or whatever, in any way of pain that somebody else is experiencing. Because they experience that. And your job is not to say, oh, well, you know, this or that or that, or try to justify why it was okay for it to happen. That person is in pain. And our proper response as Christians is not to criticize them or judge them in that pain or try to pull them. See, the thing about it, if somebody is feeling an emotion, whether the feeling is based in reality or not, is not really your job to say, hey, this feeling is not based in reality at the moment they're feeling it. Because if they're feeling it, to them it is reality in that moment. And that's what Christ said. That's what Apostle Paul taught. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Christ says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. And as Christians, one of our obligations to, if we're going to accurately reflect the character of Christ, it is to show compassion. It is to show empathy. It is to weep with those who weep. That's a proper Christian response. And if we're looking around at everything that's happen, happening in our culture, in our nation right now, and we're, we're personally unaffected by what's happening, and all it does is make us have a bad attitude about the issues that certain communities are facing, it's far too easy to say to re- just ignore it or live in ignorance and not feel their, the sense of urgency that other communities are feeling for change. And I'll, I'll be the first to acknowledge that 
many of these protests that we've been watching, it's raised my own awareness of just how much sadness and anger and injustice simmers under the cultural surface. That it's just bubbles and boils and builds over time. And if we don't take time to listen, our own stubbornness will even deepen the wounds even more. It's important as a Christian to show empathy and compassion and to weep with those who weep. However, we can do that. We can, we can listen, and we need to listen, and we can understand. But that doesn't mean we can always be in agreement with solutions. Because empathy and agreement on action or response is not the same. Because many of the solutions that are being presented right now for fixing the problems that we have are rooted in a secular worldview and not a biblical one. When people are in pain, the Christian worldview is people are experiencing pain. Now it's an opportunity for me to use that pain to point them to God. Because God is ultimately the answer to the problem. God ultimately is the solution. And we're called to be intercessors and we're not called to be activists. We're called to connect people with God, not connect people with something else. Because through the Christian worldview is that the problem that we're facing is sin. And if the problem that every, all these problems are coming from is sin, that means the solution is Jesus. So our job is to be intercessors to, for a lost and dying world to connect them with Jesus. He's the solution. I promise all this will make a lot more sense when this month is done. Okay, point number three. So we talked about empathy and agreement. Number three, that we're being shamed. Part of this cultural revolution is we're being shamed into accepting secular definitions of love and truth. Secular definitions of love and truth. If there's something that pretty much everyone that we can all agree with right now, it's that we need to love one another, right? And given the importance of love and Christianity, one might think that this is an area where the world also and the Christians could agree. We need more love. We need to show more love. We need to display more love. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Let me explain why. Let's look at Matthew chapter 22. A Pharisee asked Jesus. The Pharisee asked Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, We all know these verses. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This is number one. Love God with everything that you have. And then added on to that is the second. And he says, second is just as important as the first. There's a reason he said it second. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law of the prophets hang on these two commandments. If Jesus says that one commandment is the greatest, then we need to listen closely. It implies that any other commandment should be obeyed within that context. So in other words, what he's telling us is that what it means to love others depends first on what it means to love God. Because the way that we know to properly love others is by learning first to properly love God. What that means is that God sets the standard for what true love is. He's the standard. That is why Christianity 
is right now in a war, is in a struggle, is in a clash with the culture. But guess what? This Christianity thing was born for adversity. It was born for this. Christianity was made for adversity. Christianity, when it's not having a clash with the culture, culture is when Christianity just kind of gets watered down. But there's something amazing about what God is doing And it's about the gospel that Jesus actually preached, the teachings that Jesus actually preached. He said, hey, you're going to be hated by all people for my name's sake. They're going to hate you for what you stand up for. We need to speak the truth in love. Christians, let me say it this way, Christians should strive to love others according to God's standard of what love is. And the secular world tries to love others on my own definition of what I feel like in the moment love is to me. What's, what's scary about the culture we live in is that there's not a struggle for which truth is the truth. It's one thing to struggle whether your truth is true or whether my truth is true, which truth is true. And it's a fight for truth. That's not, what we're, that's not what we're fighting against right now. We're actually fighting against whether there even is truth, whether, whether there even is a standard of absolute truth, whether there even is a standard of morality, because you can have your truth, and that's truth to you, but I can have my truth, and that'll be truth to me, because ultimately there isn't really an absolute truth even either way to begin with. That's the fight that we're fighting so not only do you have to prove to people that the truth that you believe is the truth, is you have to prove, you have to prove that there even is a truth at all to begin with. It's a completely different ballgame. The secular world strives to love others with self-defined standards. The same is true not only with love, but it's with truth. As Christians, we hold to the belief that there is an absolute truth. The standard of what truth is. God is the standard of what truth is. Truth is not subjective. That means you can't have your own definition of truth, and I can have my own definition of truth. Covered that. Let's move on to John 17 and 3. Jesus makes a statement. He says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus whom thou hast sent. There is an expression that's used over and over throughout Scripture, and it is true God. They refer to God as the only true God. And actually, if you wanted a more literal translation of that phrase, it would actually be, he is the God of truth. Now think about that. Think of like the Egyptian gods. You had the the sun god, the moon god, the sea god, the grass god, the, the, the beetle god, the whatever other god. But think about this. Moses stood up and said, my God, you know what he's God of? God of truth. We serve the God of truth because we believe he is the one who establishes what truth is. He is the standard of what is true. And that is why as Christians, it's our moral obligation to always tell the truth. Oh, why? Because if you lie, you're not accurately representing who God is. You are representing a false form of God. And our job as Christians is to represent who God is to the rest of the world. We are his ambassadors. That's what glory is. We manifest his glory. We reveal who God is. And when we lie, we're not representing who God is. And it's our responsibility to live in such a way that every day we reflect the image of Christ's character. This ultimately comes from the principle of the logos. Everyone say logos. 
I'm going to hit this real quick and move past it. In the book of Genesis, it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? You know that verse? Verse 2, and the earth was without form and the earth was void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. So you basically you have chaos, all right? It's just nothingness, just emptiness, just without form. And it says, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. In verse 3, and God said, everybody say, God said. God spoke it, let there be light. And then what happened? There was light because God spoke it. Not because he did it, because he spoke it. And when God saw the light, he saw that it was good. Something about the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, we're, we're not reading a science textbook. The creation story is not a book, science textbook. The creation story is outlying what truth is. It's literally laying out from the beginning, here's truth, here it is. So what we're actually reading here is God is teaching us something about himself. Number one, the word logos is the Greek word for word. If you said the word of God, if you were to speak the word of God, that is logos. It's the spoken word of God. But if you wanted to break it down even more, you'd say it's when the word is spoken in truth. When the truth is spoken. Because when God spoke, it was from his words, he transformed chaos into order. And the things when God speaks the logos, he takes things that are chaos and makes them, puts them into order. And then anything that the logos speaks and the logos creates is therefore good. Okay, this is a principle. As Christians, we believe the capacity for speech. Where do we get that? Why do we talk? Why don't animals talk? I mean, like, yeah, they can bark and stuff, but they don't have languages, they don't speak. Why do we speak? Because we're created in the image of God, and God is a speaking God. And one of the characteristics that we have from God is speak, is speech, is spoken words. So as we were created in the image of God, God is a speaking God. It is speech that generates order from chaos. And there are times when it's hard to tell the truth. And there are times when it's not safe to tell the truth. Sometimes it's a lot easier to not tell the truth. You feel like, I'd be, I'd be doing myself a favor if I did not tell the truth. And yes, there are times when it's not safe to speak the truth. But it's also not safe to not speak the truth. There are times when saying the truth is risky. But what you have to do is... Look at the pros and the cons and the balance the risk and say, the risk that I am taking from not speaking the truth is outweighed by the risk that I will have by being quiet. It's a balance of risk. So you're going to pay a price either way. You're going to pay the price for telling the truth or you're going to pay the price for not telling the truth. So the truth, we believe the truth is the cornerstone of a moral society. That means if we lose our capacity to speak the truth then a moral society cannot survive. Literally, what is holding this whole thing together that we call the United States of America is the capacity that we have to speak the truth. And a moral society can only be sustained by the ability, the capacity to speak truth. That's why the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, is so, that's why it's number one. If you ask yourself why third world countries still exist, I mean, we're, it's 2020. Why are there still third world countries? Why are there still countries where people are starving to death? I mean, is there not enough food? Well, yes, of course there's enough food. What's the problem? You know why there's still third world countries? Corruption. Because their governments that rule those countries are most likely, 
I'm sure there's an exception, but there's always an exception to the rule. But for the most part, these third world countries that live in absolute poverty have the most corrupt governments. And that's why it's so important because the truth is what redeems the world from chaos. We should be afraid, yes, but we should be afraid of the right things. We should be more afraid of the consequences we have of not telling the truth. Because if telling the truth gets you in trouble, then it's a price you need to be willing to pay because if you believe that the truth is the cornerstone for a moral society, the truth is what's holding this thing all together. And if we lose the ability to speak the truth, never underestimate the power of truth. There is, more power, there is nothing more powerful than the truth because it's the truth that sets us free. In order to speak the truth, you have to let go of the outcome. In order to speak the truth, you have to let go of the outcome. That means when you choose to speak the truth, there's actually an element of faith that comes in that. Because when I speak the truth, I have to believe that this may not be popular, and this may bring me criticism, and it may even bring me persecution. But there's nothing that brings the world to a better place more than speaking the truth. Because when you speak the truth, here it is, because you're speaking the truth, you're going to face immediate short-term consequences. But in the long term, your life will be far much better off because you spoke the truth. And so when you lie, what you're actually doing is saying, I'm choosing to not have short-term consequences, and I'm choosing it to have an effect on me for the rest of my life. So you're choosing, you have to choose which risk you want. Which one? Do, if you lie, you may not face any immediate consequences. You may get out of trouble because you lied your butt off. But in the long term, you will pay a price. And it's not only a price you're going to pay, but it's a price those connected to you are going to pay. So as stewards of truth, we must love the truth more than anything. All right, this whole thing is about true Christianity. There's a reason I'm saying all this. We have to be willing to speak the truth. As stewards of truth, we must love the truth more than anything. I love what Jesus said in Matthew chapter chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. But I love what he said. He's speaking to religious people here. I love this. And I'm going to read it in the the message because the message just kind of, the message is not a translation, but it's a paraphrase. But it just kind of says it in a really neat way that brings it out differently. And he says, don't say anything you don't mean. You know, something I've learned about people is that the majority of the opinions that people have are not even their own opinion. It's just something they heard. Just something somebody said to them, just something they read online, and they're just like parrots, just repeating it. I just like, that's why, that's why Facebook started doing this fact-checking thing, because so many people are just, oh, yeah, I agree with that, click, share. And it's not even true. It's, it's a lie. We agree with so many. Think about I want you to honestly ask yourself, how many of the opinions do you have that are actually your opinions? I mean, you, you have your opinions about things that are going on in the world, but have, how much actually thought have you actually put into it? How much study? Have you been a student of history? Have you read books on the subjects? Are you, are you act- actively seeking the truth and actually pursuing something? Or are you just like spitting out words because Fox News told you so? Like, let's read this again. And don't say anything you don't mean. This counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk saying, I'll pray for you, and you never do it. Or saying, God be with you, and you're not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. (coughs) Oh my. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes or no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. 
There's a difference between speaking the truth and manipulating people to get the result you want. And Christians and preachers do this all the time. Amen. Before we're able to make a difference in the world, we have to be first make a difference in the church. We will all have frustrations and anger, but the question is, what do we do with these emotions? First, number one, we give these emotions to God. And I want to challenge you, pray more than you post. Some of y'all don't have a problem with that at all. Some of y'all, maybe somebody is watching right now. Pray more. Then I promise, I challenge you. If you only prayed once that day, don't post. Don't even post twice. Don't do it. I see people, I know they're not praying. Because all they do is live on Facebook. That's it. That's all they do is just share it all day. And I have to hide those people because I can't stand it. Pray more than you post. And if you want to address something, first, bring it to God and ask God. Instruct me about how to properly respond to this in a way that is consistent with your character. Don't respond like the world. But if you look around and see what everyone else is doing, especially people who aren't believers, don't just go blindly along with it. And don't respond like the news is telling you to respond. Because a right response may not be a righteous response. There's a difference between a right response and a righteous response. Because when you say, man, it was, it was, I did the right thing. I, did, I spoke up. But is it right according to whose standard? Is it right according to the standard that Christ taught us? Or is it right according to the standard of the, the world is exemplifying around you? Who are you trying to implement? Who are you trying to be like? Proverbs 21, 2, it says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord ponders the hearts. I love the TPT. It says, You may think you're right all the time, but God will thoroughly examine your motives. Matthew 5. I'm not going to take too much longer. I'm wrapping this up. I knew I wouldn't be able to get to everything tonight. I knew it. The context here is there's a difference between a right response and a righteous response. You're right. Yeah, you may be right, but you can do right wrong. You're right according to whose standard? That's the question. Let's look at the standard that Jesus Christ set for us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, and it says, 38, verse 38. It says, here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you in the court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Verse 43, he says, and here's another one, by the way. You're familiar with the old written law. Love your friend. And its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best. The sun to warm and the rain to nourish. To everyone regardless. The good and the bad. The nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. And you can simply say hello to those who greet you. Do you expect a medal? 
Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that in a word. What I'm saying is grow up. You're kingdom subjects. You're princes and princesses. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. One more. 1 Peter 2. We'll just read it for fun, for funsies. 2 Peter 2 and 11. It says, friends, this world's not your home. Don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side. Get this. We're not trying to win people over to our side. That's the whole point. We're trying to win people over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. That's the Christian worldview. Make the master proud of you by being good citizens. Master being anybody who has any authority over you. That can be your boss at work. Respect the authorities, whatever their level. They are God's emissaries for keeping order. It is God's will that by doing good, you might cure the ignorance of fools who think you're a danger to society. Get this, if somebody is in authority, it's because God put them in authority. Exercise your freedom by serving God, not by breaking the rules. Treat everyone you meet with dignity. Love your spiritual family. Revere God. Respect the government. It's the, I mean, I'm just reading the Bible, y'all. That's a, don't, don't stone me. Respect the government. The kind of life. I love this. He's telling you all this, but now he's about to tell you why. Why should we do all this? Verse 18 through 20. You who are servants, be good servants to your masters, not just to good masters, but also to bad ones. If you hate your boss, the standard of righteousness is you treat that boss with respect and you treat that boss like a brother. You treat that boss like a friend. You're not bad to them. I've had some bad bosses. Thank you, God. I had good, good bosses now. What counts is that you put up with it for God's sake when you're treated badly for no good reason. There's no particular virtue in accepting punishment that you well deserve. But get this. But if you're treated badly for good behavior and continue in spite of it to be good servant, that is what counts with God. Here it is. This is why it matters. This is the kind of life you've been invited into, the kind of life Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way so you would know that it could be done and also know how to do it. Get this. Christ is not asking us to do anything that he didn't already do. He set the perfect example for us. They came up to him and one by one spit in his face and slapped him. They covered his eyes and they blindfolded him and they slapped him and said, all right, prophet, prophesy to us. Who slapped you? Boom, spit in his face, slapped him. Spit in his, and it says he uttered not a word. He sit, so took, sat there and took it. He set the perfect example. He never did anything wrong. Not once said anything amiss. They called him every name in the book. But he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. If somebody has wronged you, if somebody's offended you, let God set things right. He used his servant's body to carry out the sins to the cross so we could be rid of sin, free to live in the right way. His wounds became our healing. You were a lost sheep with no idea of what you were or where you were going. Now you're named and kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. Here it is. 
the Christian perspective, before we go change the world, let's change ourselves. We need to put ourselves together before we can put the world together. I'll end with that. I believe that we have the answer. I believe that we have the answer. All of this chaos, all of this craziness, we have the answer. And it is pointing people to Christ. It's pointing people to God. I'm going to take this from a completely different angle next week. But I think you'll see how it all eventually tie together. But we need to be mirrors that reflect who God is. We have to reflect true Christianity, the real thing. Because the reason so many people reject Christianity is not because there's something wrong with Christ or something wrong with Christianity. is because they've never seen true Christianity on display to them. And it's our job to present it the way it was meant to be presented and to be intercessors for this world. God, we thank you so much for every person that's here, whether they were here in the building or whether they were watching online. God, you're an incredible God. You're amazing, God. Thank you, God, for this time that we have together. I pray, Lord, that maybe something that was said will continue to resonate in our minds and our hearts throughout this week. God, bring us back here next week, God, Lord, so we can continue this thought. Lord, but I thank you, God, Lord, for the truth that is in you. Lord, I thank you that we have a standard of truth that we don't have to wonder, we don't have to guess, we don't have to be wandering aimlessly throughout this world, throughout life. God, but there is a truth that we can hold on to, God, and that is your word, God. Help us to be solely dedicated and in total allegiance to you and you alone and to your word, God, and to the the to live the example that Jesus Christ lived out, God. Help us, God, to be accurate reflections of who you are, to not just be dispensers of truth, God, but to be stewards of truth, to carry your truth, to be reflectors of your truth, God. Help us to reflect your glory, to reflect your character, to reflect who you are in the world and go with every single one of these awesome believers here in this room tonight, God. We give you praise, we give you glory, we give you honor, God. You are great, you are good to us, God. We give you praise. God, you are good to us, God. You are a good God. You are a good God. You are a good God. Let people see how good you really are through us, God. Let people see how loving you really are through us. Let us see, let people see how kind you really are through us, God. And let us accurately display and reflect you and your character in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for sticking it out with me tonight. God bless you. Uh, I'm excited about continuing this next week, so you're dismissed in Jesus' name. On behalf of everyone here at The Anchor, we want to thank you for listening. Please share this podcast with your friends and join us at 1040 a.m. Sundays and 655 p.m. on Tuesday nights in service here at The Anchor or via Facebook Livestream and Livestream.com. We look forward to seeing you on the stream. We are also working on a YouTube live stream, so look forward to that in the future. Also, thank you so very much for your continued financial support by giving online. We couldn't maintain our services without you. One last thing. If you need prayer, please reach out to us. We are more than happy to pray with you. And until then, see you next time.